Welcome to Watching Silent Films. Um, my name is Ifong, and with me is Lily. Hello, Lily. Hello, Ifong. Hello. What we do here in this podcast is watch silent films, talk about it. That's kind of what we do. We can wake up. I said, I know. I th- I think I said something like Bob's going to be back in this one. He's not, so he'll be, probably be back when he's well again. I'll just say that. Um, so when he's back, he's back. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. So let's. Um, for this particular week, we're going to talk about... We've watched uh, Victor Seastrom's uh, uh, Amanda Was in 1917. And um, we'll just kind of dive right in. So um, let me see if I can find a quick description of this. I think it's here somewhere. I got it up. Can I say it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so... Terje, a sailor, suffers the loss of his family through the cruelty of another man during the Napoleonic Wars. Years later, when his enemy's family finds itself dependent on Terje's beneficence, I believe that's how you say it, Terje must decide whether to avenge himself or fight the man. So, and it is based on a popular poem written and set by, in the 1800s by the Norwegian playwright Heinrich Ibsen. And this early film by Victor Seastrom kicks off the quote-unquote golden age of Swedish cinema. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can also keep going with how he directed The Phantom Carriage, which is huge. Oh, yeah. Um, He became most known for directing The Phantom Carriage, which I cannot pronounce in the other language, and later as an actor in Bergman's Wild Strawberries, which premiered in 1957. And of course, Ingmar Bergman is one of the greatest directors of all time, right? Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with this work, but um, I don't know. I did. I am. I just didn't realize it was Ingmar Bergman, though. For yep. some reason, it's that Ingmar Bergman guy. Mm. He uh, he loves to be both on stage, doing a lot of Ibsen stuff, but also, I mean, he runs theater too, and then also do a lot of film. So it, to him, it's like. It's all mixed, mish, like it's all mishmashed. It's not always totally separate, if you know what I mean. In a lot oh, of his, natural. in a lot of his films, they're actually very, very theater-like, <laughs> very, mm-hmm. very theatrical in in many, many ways. Um, probably his best, most well-known film is um, the the Seventh Seal. Do I know that one? I think I've heard of it's it. It's like the guy who's a, a knight during the Crusades playing chess with death. That's the most common Im- imagery. That people have. Hmm. But it's a classic. It's a well-known classic. In the, I think in the 50s or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ingmar Berman's well-known for that. As well as many, many other uh, films that he's made over the years. He's done a huge chunk of films. So. Hmm. Always very character-driven. Very Again, very theatrical. So a lot of love for actors, you know. Yes, I could see that in this one too. Yeah, it does. But, but that's Ingmar Mer- Bergman, who mm-hmm. I think may have just been inspired too by Victor, uh, the guy who directed this one. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. So, what are uh, your thoughts about this particular one? I know you have uh, some thoughts about Ibsen, right? 
Yes. So I'm familiar with Ibsen's work because I've done a few plays by him. At least I've been in a play of his, Hedda Gobbler. I've read several of his plays. I'm actually a fan of Ibsen. Uh, he's a very interesting character. Like, I think the deal about him, he's... I, I don't have the, his information right in front of me, but one of the biggest scandals that he did is he got a girl pregnant at 16, and I think he was almost 30, so it was a big, big no-no back in the 1800s. So when that scandal came out, he kind of ran off into the fjords and wrote a whole bunch of plays, and then he came back. <laughs> that was, like, such a short breakdown. But I really enjoy his translated work. Um, some people can't stand Ibsen. It's like with any you know, a writer, oh, I hate so-and-so, oh, I love him. I personally like Ibsen's style. Um, he's very character-driven, and this, I'm not familiar with his poetry. I didn't know he was a poet, but this film is based on the poem. So after w filming this, excuse me, after watching it, I can definitely see where they borrowed some of Ibsen's themes for his characters in the movie. And not to mention, you know, it is, um, you know, it's that area where he grew up. So that feeling is there too, the type of grit. Um, on a side note, not related to Ibsen, and I haven't seen this film, but it reminded me of The Lighthouse, the William Def the Willem Dafoe movie that just came out. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very much so. Just from the little clips I've seen of it, I was I just reminded me of you know they reminded me of each other. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a well that particular movie, which is uh, at this time of this recording, it's about twenty twenty, but I think it came out last. I think it came out last year, and he directed yeah, it. Yeah, last fall, sometime December, something like that. So it's a black and white movie. It's in a square Academy aspect ratio, one point three three. It's supposed to harken back to an old classic movies. Um, mm. I don't know. If, necessarily these particular ones but for sure it harkens it, it pays homage to the older movies and it's like a lot of uh performances by William Defoe and uh I always call the Twilight guy but yeah I suppose he has a name <laughs> uh, Robert Pattinson yeah, yeah I suppose he has a name he's gonna be Batman soon but um <laughs> he's a Twilight guy <laughs> yeah so 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 he's supposed to also well known acting in that too and it, it's supposed to be like this uh a lighthouse in New England I want to say I haven't it seen it. might have been Maine. I'm not 100% sure either. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. But um, but you're right. It, 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 so I think, I mean, I again, I, I haven't done as much with uh, Ibsen as yourself. I just read some of his stuff as high school assignments. And what I understand of his reputation is that he tends to be more depressing, which is a, a common uh, uh, thing for the Nordic any any works of art from the Nordic region tend to be kind of depressing. Is <laughs> <laughs> is I think so most people's criticism, there. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I think um, one of my high school friends he uh, he doesn't do that now. I don't think, but uh, when he was um, in New York City, he actually helped run a, a Scandinavian slash Nordic playhouse, <laughs> like off off Broadway. <laughs> so of course they do Ibsen, but uh, they specialize in like. Super, like, depressing, super down plays. <laughs> I mean, I always joke with them with that. But anyways, it's like, you know. So that's kind of the thing I get out of that. Um, at least that's my bias. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I'm not a well-studied Ibsen slash 
you know, uh, purveyor of the the performance arts from the Nordic region. You know what I mean? So I'm not like mm-hmm. an expert myself by any means. But that's just what I've heard it goes on in that region um, due to just the way that the sun and the seasons, you know, the seasonal affective disorder where like mm-hmm. if you don't see the sun for like six months out of the year, you tend to get depressed. And that's why these artists always create these super depressing relational stories of things. But, yep. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if you guys, I, I don't know if you look into his particular relationship to this particular story, Tongma Ibsen. He wrote this epic poem, poem about this, um, uh, this Turgi sailor who, through the blockade of the Napoleonic Wars, went to get food for his family and was thrown in jail. And by the time he came back his uh, wife and daughter died but then he later on rescues um, somebody from like uh, uh, the sea from certain death and turns out the person he rescued was the original captain that captured him and Mm -hmm. threw him in prison and caused him to lose essentially lose his wife and daughter and so he was like set on avenging himself by you know Making a uh, a widow. Yeah, making him a widower. Yeah, exactly. And then he got he sort of um, came to an epiphany of that's not who I am, and also the little kid. I guess it was the daughter. I think. I that's what I was a little confused about because yeah. I almost thought when he went to give the little girl a kiss, it was his family. Because I, I don't know, like, he, even though he had looked at the woman, you know, coddling the little girl, I was just like, wait, is it actually his wife and daughter? And they didn't die? The guy just kind of No, no, it was the him. captain's wife and daughter. Yeah, but I was thinking goes, yeah. it was Terje's wife and daughter. Like, they didn't die. He just kidnapped them. I don't know. That's this, what, That was my thought then. <laughs> yeah, this actually brings up uh, another point about just the, the way the film language is continuing to evolve, right? sometimes mm. in things like this it's really hard to discern very clearly just from film itself without any context which is why i know i keep harping on this but it's true is that without that context you, you know you would be lost right you'd be like is yeah. it his own kids or is it like yeah <laughs> the captain so like that's why i said like if you read the original story the original poem by ibsen the original um story and also what was inspired and just the context of what this how this film would get made then you understand that that's not what it's about it's about this person trying to take potentially take revenge but he didn't and you know he let them go and they kind of sail off into you know happy ending and at the end they even stopped by like the whole family you know wife and kids and whatever they came back and said hey thanks for saving us you know, later on, mm. and he kind of the story just ends with him going, "Oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's it." <laughs> um, I, I I just found it interesting that Ibsen himself, um, like you said, during that period of time, uh, moved to the fjords and befriended this. Uh, this is the story behind the epic poem: is that he befriended this. Uh, they call it pilot, but like sailor, same idea. Like, yeah. it, it befriended this person who has a vast amount of stories about his time during the Napoleonic Wars. And so the rumor 
is that this is actually about him. Like that person that you befriended, mm-hmm. they became really good friends actually. Later on, he would come and visit in time. Hmm. So the, when he wrote this, he, he would complete the poem later on. He didn't write it like he had the idea for the poem. He didn't, I don't think he completed it during his stay. The theory that then he moved back somewhere else. But the point is, so he got inspired by this person. Just tell, just it's almost like he's just writing things that he was saying, and then kind of distilling it into his own art too. Hmm, that so. is very interesting indeed. Yeah, hmm. yeah and uh, it, I, I, I don't know if there's a specific detail that this other person who um, is, is like, he didn't lose his wife and daughter, I don't think, but he just has so many stories of his time during this actual real-life event. Now, I don't think this movie was like a documentary. It was just a, a story that he created off of some of the stories that this sailor person told, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a true life, but it's heavily inspired by it. And all his grandkids, even to this day, will be like, yeah, that one time Ibsen was BFFs with our grand granddad, you know, father, they did this. And it was like, yeah, heavily inspired. And they always claim, their families claim to fame with Ibsen, you know. So it's like legend. It continues to be passed down, even to this day, right? Hmm. Well, apparently so. <laughs> um, I had a chance to actually, I, I think I linked it to you guys, and I, get, I guess I'll put it in the show notes as well, but there is there is uh, a translation of the original epic poem, you know? Ooh. So uh, link, when you have time, it's actually it. just... Because I'll read it since, you know... That's about 43 stanzas, or whatever you call that. It's only a couple, two or three pages. Probably it's not stanza. super long. It's not really long. But, um... One of the things that was interesting was, I I can't remember where I read this now in my research, but somebody said something like, in order for you to truly experience this poem, you have to read it in the original language. Like, what's translated now, it, it's lost. All of the very, um, the rhyming, the texture of the language. Yeah. And that's the beauty of, like, the original language. And, of course, we don't speak what he wrote it in. So, that's who, the best thing we can get is the translation. Now, in the in the short movie, it was, I say short, it's 55 minutes. In in, in the movie, it actually lifts uh, the translation from this translation. This translation's by... Right, by John Northam. And so, the intertitles actually lifts directly out of this poem. The translation of this poem, rather. Mm. You know what I mean? But the pilot from the Haur Island, uh, he, he actually, his name is Sven. He, made, he, he was good friends with Sven. And he was like, I think it was running a pharmacist at that time, Ibsen. And he became really good friends with this, uh, this guy. He was kind of a former sailor. And he actually made a painting of him, too. So, like, I love how these... I keep stressing this point last few weeks, but, like, some of these directors, they're, like, Renaissance people. Renaissance men. They don't just do one thing, right? They do several things really well. Mm. And he did this painting of his his good friend Sven in 1849. It's incredible! Like, he, you could paint like that, you could write epic poetry, and write plays. I mean, sometimes you're just like, wow. Yeah, it is amazing that some people just have all the talent. <laughs> I know, and then crazy. they just build themselves up from it. It's crazy. So anyway, back back to this director though. He um, 
he he was born in Sweden, um, but I think he actually his family moved to Brooklyn and he moved back to Sweden when he was seven. So he has actually American roots. I mean, some of it. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. After his his mom died, and he actually started acting instead of directing, and in time he got into directing. Um, and he actually got an offer from uh, Louis B. Mayer from uh, you know all those MGM studios, and uh, so he made a number of features uh, in that time. He directed. Stars such as Greta Garbo, John Gilbert, Leland Geish, uh, Lon Chaney, Norman Shearer. So, just many, many films silent before even the talkies. So, hmm. when he was done with his English career, I guess, uh, he ended up moving back to Sweden. Uh, we directed a couple things, but then he started acting in the local theater. <coughs> Excuse me. Because again, the the there seems to be something from that region. Again, I'm not from that region, but it is my understanding that that folks from that region they love theater, and so he goes back and he starts performing, acting in, in the, a theater company. So, and that's how he started. That's how he was, uh, you know, hired by Ingmar Bergman later on to be in Wild Strawberries. I just thought it was interesting. Um, so that's the career of the director. Hmm. And then um, what do you think of the short itself? The, the, not just the story, but sort of the, the film itself. Was it effective? Was it uh, hard to watch without context? Or mm, I didn't think it was that difficult uh, without much context. The, the only part was just the child. Uh, I thought it was very straightforward. You know, uh, well, I might be wrong. Because it just seems all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's you know, in the boat. And then the guys come and just, you know, upheave his life. And then they take him hostage. But as it says, you know, he's kind of captured during the Napoleonic War. So, the, of course, they're going to take prisoners. So, I mean, you kind of have to work it down and figure it out yourself. I guess that's the only part, the only other part that seemed a bit confusing. Because once the war is over, then they're all free. Because they're no longer prisoners of war. Uh, I, I I like this movie. You know, it it's kind of, it's a little different. But you get to see another world because of it because it is filmed in another country so you know despite all the technology being the same really our stories are the same too no matter where we come from absolutely agree i mean it's just sometimes like i don't know if you've heard the saying i don't know who said this but the more specific sometimes it is the more universal it becomes or something Hmm. and so ibsen even though he created this story that was so specific um, and then this director took it upon himself to even make it even more, I think, personal for his the way that he adapted this, that the, some of the themes became more universal. But actually, I actually found this film, both the poem and the movie, to be actually very similar to Dante's Inferno that we watched uh, 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 a few uh, podcasts ago. 
because I was also an adaptation of an epic poem. Right? Right. That is right. I, I just found so fast, found it so incredibly uh, just fascinating and maybe moving that some of the earliest works adapted poetry. Like, of all things, mm. that was. Uh, I, I forgot what the context of, but I remember in high school, the, the English teacher said that it's the way that language. There's there's several types of language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry if I'm repeating this in the previous. If there's, we've done this. In no, the previous, it's good to hear again and again. Yeah, if, if I've said it in po- previous podcasts, I apologize. So I often forget things, so I have to bring it back up over and over again. But um, that, but he taught us that um, the way language is communicated between uh, people or humans is that there are different types of cultures of languages that are used, and so. The lowest type is kind of just like WWF, like, like just basically barely cavemen. And you can kind of communicate, but there's not a lot of vocabulary and a lot of words. And that's called the low culture. And often um, is like if people are in very far off places that haven't received education and they haven't built up their literacy and so that's the low culture in the sense that they don't have a lot of vocabulary to communicate what their feelings are, but they can. So that's the low culture. The second one is called the pop culture and pop culture is just popular culture. Like what is the most common things that we use today? Like you and me, generally speaking, use, you know, average number of words to talk about certain things and that we communicate, we use a certain language that we communicate with, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just the popular language or the the pop culture. Now, the next culture is called the power culture. Power culture. And the power culture is like business people, like lawyers or uh, academics. And sometimes, if you read their published paperwork or the uh, lawyer lawyer draft fine print stuff. They have specific ways of using specific words, sometimes really long words to describe certain situations. And they have very industry-specific terms they use, right? Hmm. And so that's what power culture is, like something that is specific to people in power. I mean, you hear that with politics too, right? Like when um, politicians are trying to be like, you know, don't worry about the coronavirus. It's just... uh, you know, it's we've seen this before, and it's under control. Like, and these like words like control, words like assurances that everything will be fine. Like these languages are used by people in power to communicate things, right? And so that's like yep. the power culture. That's a, above another step above popular culture, which is what most people live in. Most people don't often use power. Sometimes they'll go into power culture, but. More often than that, people are in pop culture status. And then there's a th- the final level is called the high culture. High culture is like works of classic literature and art and epic poetry. And the highest form is always poetry. Because poetry is the way that you can communicate not just flowery languages and stuff, but it's the way that you can communicate with the most um, sort of meaning and intent and symbolism, and thoughts, and ideas, and concepts. It's the highest form that human beings can communicate with each other, no matter what language they use, right? Mm. So that's the high culture. And I feel like 
these early films like the Inferno film, Dante Inferno, as well as this one, we're, we're adapting films using high cultural languages. It's incredible, the intertitles, right? Yeah, I think so. So that's what I love about these early films is that right from the get-go, we've got these amazing directors who are taking works of classic poetry, narrative poetry, epic poetry, and turning them into like just these amazing pieces of work, you know? Mm. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, it doesn't seem like, well, unless you really delve into a script to see their inspiration, it seems as if people aren't adapting so many, I mean, well, there's there's tons of films now that are adapted off of books, like a big chunk of them are, but poetry, not so much just or even like song lyrics, taking something that someone else wrote, you know, a brief two minute thing and turning it into an entire story. That's something we don't seem to find very often, or at least not anything someone's willing to uh, put on the credits as inspiration for. It's hard. Yeah, I think people are comfortable with the power culture, which is the language that they're familiar with, or even pop culture. And so most of our films today, or even, heck, even low culture, like Adam Sandler movies, yeah, <laughs> they're not really even popular culture. They're just, they barely make sense, right? So, so we got mm, most sometimes. of that. <laughs> yeah. But I love just the, the way it's framed. Everything that is framed in this movie is the maison scene is incredible. And this is before even the term was coined. Um, like in the beginning and towards the end, which is like a flashback or flash forward, like the man against the sea seems to be a recurring image mm. of Terji, the main character. Like while the poetry does a justice and it evokes some imagery. If you read the original work from Ibsen, but then like to show that on film as a narrative, and Victor does it so amazingly with just like putting a lone figure. And like, I think there was even one scene where Turgid was like shaking his fist against the sea. Yep, he definitely was. Yeah, it was like this incredible image of like basically shaking your fist at God. That whole it's a very, it's a archetype, right? Of like, you know, I'm angry at you. Why are you doing this? And I feel like that, like it's literally in the film. That he's doing that, right? And I thought that was really striking when you could frame something like that. I also found it interesting that whatever the sea was doing was reflecting the inner turmoil of Terje. I don't know if you noticed that. I'm. So if it's calm, I think I might have. He's calm. Noticed it, yeah. but if the sea is violent, that's what he's feeling. He is just being tossed and fro, and it's it just. Especially towards the end, with the wife and kids and stuff of the captain, the whole like it was like a storm almost, you know. Yeah. So, I thought that was really well done. That the nature itself reflects kind of the inner life of Terje, and when um, he was being chased by the I I want to say the British soldier, the frigate. And it was when he, so when Terje went to get food for the wife and kids, and he came back with bounty, and the soldiers from Black Hill was chasing him. 
that whole editing sequence was pretty i mean it's melodramatic granted but it's was just really well done for a movie in uh 1917 right yeah i thought so too like a chase sequence almost and finally there's a around the 38 mark when the towards the end when they're trying to rescue the captain and the people off of that ship that's run aground or something i think it's run aground right Mm-hmm. The there's a specific shot which looking out the side of the ship and there's three crew trying to pull together a mast I think that fell side or some something off the side of the ship. Yeah, the mast falls off. And I thought that was a really brilliant shot. Just the juxtaposition of what the just the angle itself was incredible. So I lo- I really love the composition of the shot. The, the technical aspect of this film is just an amazing piece of work. Yeah, because they were filming on boats. Uh, at one point, I almost thought it was—I <laughs> almost thought it was a kind of green screen. Obviously not, because the way the water was thrown at Terje from the side almost seemed a little <laughs> too unrealistic, like how they would do in a '60s sitcom, like throw some water on the actor. Well, I'm sure they did were, that, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> to, to make make the drama that's the kind of the whole point is to raise mm. the stakes right mm-hmm. but it's just that we're, yeah. we're already doing that right? they didn't have to wait until the 1960s they're doing it now right the 19-teens <laughs> so yeah you're right they probably had another boat next to him <laughs> something like that <laughs> or maybe they were on a sound I, I don't really know how it was done um, like many early sound films it's really hard to get behind the scenes because there are for not. the most part they're like the film itself is lost but even then, it's like to get any paperwork for the film. It depends on if they kept really good paperwork. If they did, then there might be some behind-the-scenes stuff left. But still, it's just um, to even have this. And this is a rumor. Like, there might be a longer cut, too. It's supposed to be 77 minutes, maybe? From yeah, I read from 45 that. Or to 77. So we don't know if this is the the all the complete footage, you know? Unfortunately, that's the nature of silent films. Probably for 1920s. A big chunk of them, you know, didn't survive as a whole. It would just be like bits and pieces of it, I think. So, we don't know for sure. Mm. But yeah, it it felt to me like more like a fable. Like Inferno. It's, it's less almost a narrative story, but more just like a Arabian Night fable, you know. Except in Norway, but yeah. <laughs> Same idea, yeah. Yeah. All right, any other parting thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I can't think of anything else for this particular film, but it's it's a good one. Maybe some if someone can compose some better music for it, it'd be even more epic. But oh, yes. it's definitely worth another watch. Yeah, with better music. I did. I did find a copy with some music. It wasn't great, but it was better than no music. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, folks. Um, with that, we're gonna wrap up today's podcast. Um, we'll be back again uh, next week, uh, talking about Alski Blouchet's uh, filmography. I think. Woohoo! Maybe all of it. Uh, not all of it all next week, but just over the next few weeks. Um, so, 
let's go forward with that. Um, thank you, Lily, and uh, thank you, listeners. Um, you can find more of our stuff at watchingsilentfilms.wordpress.com. That's watchingsilentfilmsplural.wordpress.com. You can also email us um, with your comments, suggestions, thoughts at uh, watchingsilentfilms at gmail.com. And again, please always uh, leave us a rating or uh, a review, ideally on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you use uh, to find us. And thank you again, Lily. Thanks, listeners. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you all. Goodbye.